Hello, my name is Thomas and welcome to this special episode of British Culture Albin Never Dies, all about Trafalgar Night, the night that we commemorate the Battle of Trafalgar, the 21st of October 1805. A very special thank you to Mr Price on Facebook. I posted in the Facebook group, the Gentleman Society for the Appreciation of the British Empire, group with 27,000 members asking for what bit of imperial history would you like me to cover and Mr Price said how about a what if what if Nelson had failed at Trafalgar when the French fleet destroyed British naval dockyards Portsmouth Chatham Plymouth etc and as a consequence would British hegemony have prevailed and would World War One have occurred wink face in the original so Thank you very much for that suggestion. I think it's a really, really good suggestion. I have happy memories of celebrating Trafalgar Night um, when I was an undergraduate uh, with the University Royal Naval Units for three years. And I know that servicemen around the world, especially, of course, with the Royal Navy, celebrate tonight, Trafalgar Night. So I thought I'd have a look at the significance. I'd look at some of the what-ifs best as I can, and give some suggestions for how you can celebrate Trafalgar Night. Of course, as I've occasionally said on previous episodes when I touch on history, I'm not a historian, but happily, happily, there are plenty of other fellows who are, and they've written some really, really good books. So for this, I'm drawing on Lawrence James's book, The Rise and Fall of the British Empire, a massive book, even given its size, it can only cover uh, Nelson and his victories very, very briefly, but I think it gives really good context. There's uh, a book called Empire of the Seas, How the Navy Forged the Modern World by Brian Lavery. I found this a really, really good insight, especially into, well, the Navy at the time of Nelson. And then there's a short-form book called HMS Victory by Peter Goodwin, uh, really focusing, of course, just on the one ship, but uh, going from the broadest possible focus to something, a fairly good reader on just a specific topic, to a laser-focused kind of booklet um, on the HMS Victory. So I'm drawing upon these. I've done quite a bit of reading, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy this kind of thing so i hope you enjoy it and hopefully hopefully we can also talk about some ways that we can we can celebrate celebrate the night so as i say i'll start with the the big reader on the topic which is lawrence james's epic epic book the rise and fall of the british empire he sets the scene it's december 1804 napoleon has crowned himself Emperor Napoleon I at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, causing consternation. He'd conquered much of Western Europe, but he still desired much more. He was parceling out his new empire to his family and just, as I say, wanted more. So I'm going to read from Lawrence James's book. Napoleon set his mind on the conquest of Britain, which he recognised as his most formidable and implacable enemy. His invasion plans demanded mastery of the channel by the Franco-Spanish fleet, based at Toulon. This broke through a blockade in May 1805, made a feint towards the West Indies, but was intercepted by Nelson off Cape Trafalgar in October and destroyed. Eighteen battleships were sunk or destroyed, and with them all hopes of France ever challenging Britain at sea. 
this is something that we do see repeatedly throughout British history. Whenever the Europeans are all united, for example, under the Romans, we get the conquest of Britain. Under Napoleon, we have Western Europe being united. He attempts to invade Britain. And of course, more recently, Europe's unification has attempted to invade Britain in 1940. And this is one of the great successful acts of resistance. I could, of course, draw on the the Spanish Empire trying to invade Britain in the Elizabethan era. But there are plenty of examples. This is one of those key moments in history in which Britain was able to repel foreign invaders. So, let's look at this battle. The Battle of Trafalgar between the Franco-Spanish fleet commanded by Vice Admiral Villeneuve and the British fleet commanded by Lord Nelson on Monday, 21st of October, 1805. It took place in the Atlantic Swell to the west of Cape Trafalgar, which is located in the province of Cadiz in southwest Spain. Of course, whenever you have a naval battle, you always name it after the nearest point of land. What's the battle that made Britain safe? So, the British forces were led by... Lord Horatio Nelson, he was already a hero. He was the veteran of many campaigns. He had defeated the French at the Battle of the Nile. We hear about him in the in the movie Master and Commander back in 2003. The movie set in about 1805 and uh, Captain Aubrey tells a story at dinner about Nelson refusing a coat because his zeal for king and country kept him warm. And Aubrey says that from any other man, you'd say this was pitiful stuff, but from Nelson, it made your heart glow. Of course, Captain Aubrey is the hero of the movie, played by Russell Crowe, Hollywood star. But it's a great moment in which even the hero has a hero. Even he has someone that he rarely looks up to. So let's have a bit of background on the real Nelson. Again, here I start to draw on Brian Lavery's book, Empire of the Seas, How the Navy Forged the Modern World. Nelson, of course, was uh, brought up in Norfolk and at 12 years old started his naval journey. He made two voyages to the West Indies and merchant ships, learning how to sail the oceans as part of a small crew. Think of that even just in modern terms. With all the modern technology and safety equipment we have, a 12-year-old sailing across from Britain to the West Indies. This really helped shape him. This young experience as a teenager formed him into the great naval man who had become. By 1784, he was appointed captain of the frigate Boreas and sailed again to the West Indies, where he became the senior naval officer in the Leeward Isles with Prince William, later King William IV, the future uncle of... Uh, Queen Victoria. Nelson had that man under his command. So there you go <laughs> again. It's not an everyday officer who has the future king under his command. Uh, but that king would be known as, I believe, the sailor sailor king. He obviously had a huge impact on the future William the Fourth. Of course, with such a capable man. Once war became inevitable between Britain and revolutionary France, Nelson was given command of the Agamemnon, a 74-gun ship. He saw plenty of action 
and lost his right arm at the Battle of Tenerife, returning to war in the Mediterranean a few months later, worth bearing in mind that medicine was not quite so advanced then as it is now. But even now, it would be a horrific thing, not just to lose an arm, but to be straight back into battle so soon. Nelson, of course, had been blinded in one eye early in his career. Lost an eye, lost an arm. He was already, by some counts, about five foot four inches tall, uh, leading to the joke, Britain's greatest hero is very, very small and getting smaller all the time. As I say, he was a national hero and was, uh, in all the, all the popular press, his professional life, as I say, was beyond question. His personal life, much commented upon. But I think, as I say, it's a rare biography that doesn't touch on his affairs with Lady Hamilton, just as when you read a book on, oh, Gladstone, then you always have Disraeli there, and if you have Disraeli, you always have Gladstone there, it seems compulsory. But I think something that really sheds an interesting light on Nelson is Nelson's prayer, and this is my laser focus book on the HMS Victory by Peter Godwin. This, I think, is really interesting. May the great God, whom I worship, grant to my country, and for the whole benefit of Europe in general, a great and glorious victory. And may no misconduct in anyone tarnish it, and may humanity after victory be the predominant feature in the British fleet. For myself, individually, I commit my life to him who made me, and may his blessing light upon my endeavours for serving my country faithfully. To him I resign, and the just cause which is entrusted to me to defend. I love, I love this prayer, and I think it, it shows his understanding of the greater situation, the situation beyond himself, the situation beyond just this country. I think it is a brilliant, brilliant prayer. And I think it gives quite a lot of insight into him, and it's something that tends to be overlooked. So I was really interested to see it included in uh, Peter Godwin's, I say, very short book. Of course, the Battle of Trafalgar was Nelson's greatest battle. It was the one where he finally defeated the French fleet and kept Britain safe. It was also the battle in which he died. So, we have the great Franco-Spanish fleet, considerably larger than the fleet commanded by Nelson. But British crews, of course, through superior training, were able to fire at about double the rate of the opposition. Warfare is, of course, an unpleasant business, and sailing can be an unpleasant business too. So battles at sea, well, they are horrendous. Note that as the cannonballs smash through uh, the ships, you get splinters flying everywhere, taking out eyes and becoming permanently lodged in parts of the body. Hence the old idea of pirates and mariners in general having, having eye patches, the splinters would blind. You have limbs broken, and of course setting a broken limb at sea, especially again with the medicine at the time, was a risky business. Limbs would often simply be lost. I love, uh, I say, the movie command, Master and Commander does show, does show this. It shows the preparation sand on the desks to stop slipping from water and blood 
water on the sails in case of fire. And we have, you know, this is a, a literate time, we have accounts, uh, for example, uh, from the victory, Lieutenant uh, Lewis Rotley described the scene, again, drawing heavily on Brian Lavery's book. A man should witness a battle in a three-decker from the middle deck, for beggars or description. There was fire from above, fire from below, besides the fire from the deck I was upon. The guns recoiling with violence reports, louder than thunder, the deck heaving, the side straining, lips might move, but orders and hearing were out of the question. Everything was done by signs. It's even worse than a cockpit, uh, as Lieutenant Paul Nichols recorded. My nerves were but little accustomed to such trials, but even the dangers of battle did not seem more terrific than the spectacle before me. On the long table lay several, anxiously looking for their turn to receive the surgeon's care, yet dreading the fate which he might pronounce. One subject was undergoing amputation, and every part was heaped with sufferers, their piercing shrieks and expiring groans were echoed through this vault of misery. What a contrast to the hilarity and enthusiastic mirth which reigned in this spot the preceding evening. Again, the horror of the battle is worth touching upon, because, of course, it is, tends to be a battle that we celebrate, but also commemorate. This was Nelson's greatest victory, and, of course, it was also his end. He was shot by a sniper high up in the rigging on one of the French ships. Most of us have a very vivid image in our mind of the death of Nelson due to a painting by the American artist Benjamin West, dated in about 1806. West had previously painted uh, in 1770 the death of General Wolfe on the Plains of Abraham, where Wolfe had secured victory against the French army. The painting became hugely popular, West later painting at least five copies. In 1801, three years after the Battle of the Nile, West met Horatio Nelson, who told him how much he admired the painting of Wolfe, and asked why he'd not produced any more similar paintings, and West told him it's because he'd found no subject of comparable notability. Nelson expressed the desire that he would like to be the subject of West's next similar painting. So in 1805, after Nelson was killed at the Battle of Trafalgar, West created, within six months, a remarkable painting, The Death of Nelson, drawn from about 50 portraits of survivors of the battle. When West exhibited it, it had around 30,000 people come to see it, members of the public, within just one month. I think it shows something of uh, the mark of Nelson, the status of Nelson among the general public, that they flocked, flocked to see it. Nelson's last words may well have been his most famous, or at least his most talked about. After being hit by a musket ball at about 1.15 and taken below decks, and dying around 4.30, he supposedly said, Kiss me hardy. It's included in a lot of older books, I should note. It's not really talked about in any of the three books that I've referenced, but it's talked about in a lot of much older books. And it's quite likely to have actually been kismet. 
Hardy, which is a fairly, kismet is a fairly common word in Eastern Mediterranean, which means fate as assigned by God. It's a word in Turkish drawn from Arabic. And of course, Nelson and Hardy had both fought throughout the Mediterranean, including the Eastern Mediterranean. Thomas Hardy, the captain of the HMS Victory, was a close friend of Nelson, future first naval lord, and had been at the Battle of the Nile. So there's a bit of argument that goes on. Was it kiss me or kismet? Again, some say kismet wasn't really recorded in mainstream English until a little bit later, but I think this is probably one of the entry points for it into popular consciousness. After all, these fellas, they travelled abroad and came across this foreign phrase most likely, just as you probably won't find in modern English, um, timbudong. <laughs> Whereas I have come across timbudong because I've lived in China where it means I don't understand. So is it possible for me to use this phrase timbudong when it's not recorded in popular English? I think similarly, Nelson and Hardy, having travelled quite a bit, had probably picked up a fair few phrases, so we can probably say Kismet Hardy, fate, were his final words. But if saying Kiss Me Hardy helps you remember it, why not? His funeral, Nelson's funeral in 1806, was said to have been one of the greatest and most emotional pageants that London has ever seen. Nelson was a, as say, described by Brian Laver, as a charismatic leader, good seaman, skilled and original tactician, and a resolute and fierce, fearless leader. Fearsome too. Nelson's funeral has been compared to the funeral of Winston Churchill, in that he was a national hero, and perhaps as a national event, we can see it as similar to the, the recent funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. He was, of course, memorialised by Trafalgar Square, where we have Nelson's column, and it's hard for me to talk about Nelson's column on this podcast without talking about Blue Peter cleaning Nelson's column with John Noakes. It's a pretty tall thing. It's a pretty rickety ladder that's put up against it. And the Blue Peter children's presenter, John Noakes, climbs up the ladder to clean Nelson's column. It's a much-loved piece of footage, and these days you can find it very, very easily on YouTube. Of course, if you go and see Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square, you can visit the National Gallery and see the fighting Temeraire. The painting depicts the 98-gun HMS Temeraire, one of the last ships of the line to have played a role in the Battle of Trafalgar, and it's being towed up the line by a paddle-wheel steam tug in 1838 as seen by the painter Turner, to be broken up for scrap. I visited recently, and it is still a much-loved painting. In fact, a poll organised by the BBC Radio 4's Today programme in 2005 had it voted as the nation's favourite painting, and 2020 was included on the new £20 banknote, um, along with uh, Turner's 1799 self-portrait. And it is a remarkable thing to see, of course. You know, you see it in prints, you see it in pictures, you see it well, on banknotes now, um, but to see it in real life you really appreciate the colour, the depth, the texture of it, and something I find quite interesting is that the sun, the setting sun, um, is left blank, it's, it's the canvas that you can see, with everything else built up all around it, it really draws your eye in. I know that in Persian miniatures often the canvas is left blank to signify the face of God, because of course in Islamic art you cannot show the face of the Prophet, you cannot show the face of God. And so they leave it blank when they do their 
depictions in, in a certain form of Persian miniatures. But of course the Victorians were fascinated by this kind of thing, and of course the Georgians before them, so I do wonder if Turner had come across this idea because he famously said, light is God. So I wonder if there is some significance there. Just a little detail I notice. Of course, this painting is filled with significance. I say the, the modern tug in a strong, dark colour, and then the, the old ship, ghostly, with all the colours being taken away. It is a striking picture to see in any format. But as I say, I visited recently, and it's a reminder of just what a remarkable painting it is. So... This podcast was originally <laughs> asking what if, what if Nelson had failed? What if we had lost the Battle of Trafalgar? So let's have a look at this. Could Napoleon have destroyed ports and dockyards? Well, that would be up to probably the first line of defence would be the sunk ports. Hastings, New Romney, Dover, Sandwich. Uh, these ports, of course, are the old historic uh, ports uh, that have special status in English law going back to the time of Edward the Confessor. So these would probably have been the first line of defence. Could Napoleon have landed on British beaches? Elizabeth I had prepared for a similar eventuality with the Spanish Armada. Of course, uh, we had the naval defence against it, but if it failed, there was an army raised. And there we have Elizabeth I famously saying, I may have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and a king of England at that. The reference to stomach, of course, because that's the home of your appetites and desires. So, perhaps we could have seen a battle on the beaches. Would Britain's dominance have been destroyed for a century? I wonder, if our fleet had been destroyed, perhaps we could look to the... The events of 1571 between the Ottomans and the Venetians. So the Battle of Lepano, the Venetians destroyed the Ottoman fleet. But the Ottomans were able to invade Cyprus, although Famagusta held out a bit longer. Um, but famously the Ottoman Sultan said, You may have cut my beard by destroying my fleet, but it will grow again. Whereas by taking Cyprus I have cut off your arm. Land cannot be reclaimed. And Francis Drake, of course, more than a decade later, defeated the Spanish Armada, attacked Cadiz, and said, I have singed the beard of the King of Spain. And given at that time there was an alliance between um, Elizabethan England and Ottoman, uh, the Ottoman Empire, I wonder if that was deliberate reference, although now rather lost. Again, what if we'd failed at the Battle of Trafalgar? Could we have continued to influence the continent? For me, there's no counterfactual to history. Right? We only have the history we have. We can't, we can't ever be sure of what might have happened. But it seems our ability to support the free Portuguese, the Spanish, the monarchist French, would have been removed. France, France's hegemony on the continent could well have remained, despite Napoleon's losses in Russia, 1812, and opposition from Prussia, so perhaps we would see a very different modern world with a great modern power in Western Europe, opposed to Great Britain. So, so if we are to celebrate Trafalgar Night, how should we celebrate? I've already referenced Master and Commander based on the books by Patrick O'Brien, which are themselves probably based more on Cochrane than Nelson, um, but they are well, they're fantastic books. 
That's a pretty good, pretty good film. I think it's surprisingly historically accurate. I mean, they did build a pretty accurate replica of an old ship of the line, which I've, I've been aboard. I've been to see it in, uh, in San Diego. And it is impressive. Is it totally 100% accurate to the era? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I view it all as movies, as theatre, and, you know, an extension of school plays, really. <laughs> so I'm never too worried of how accurate it is, but I think it can inspire an interest in history, and I'm impressed at how many little details they're able to do. Equally, there's the TV show Hornblower, back from uh, 1998 through to 2003. Uh, that's based on the books by C.S. Forrester, and it's probably a bit closer to Nelson, although also with a quite a large dollop of Lord Cochrane in it. It's funny, he is a remarkable fella, my recommended rabbit hole. And uh, and it's always remarkable to me that there's never been a film, or at least never to my knowledge, been a film about Lord Cochrane. I'm pretty sure he get a pretty good film out of him. As I say, Master and Commander and his whole TV show Hornblower are both drawing on parts of his life. So here's a movie to watch, a TV show to watch. You could, of course, dress up in the old costumes. I've done that. Um, and you could just have a nice bit of rum. Until 1970, uh, Royal Navy sailors still got a daily allowance of rum, neat for seniors, watered down for juniors. That tradition uh, dates back to the 1600s for sure, probably quite a bit further back for individual traditions. Uh, but it became formalised in uh, 1740, so well in time for Nelson born in 1758 so maybe just a nice bit of rum be a way to celebrate so that is my special episode on trafalgar night i say i've done quite a lot of reading um, and i hope you've enjoyed my little samples from the books empire of the seas how the navy forged the modern world by brian lavery the hms victory by peter goodwin and uh, the Rise and Fall of the British Empire by Lawrence James, which is, I say, quite an epic tome, uh, but one that I enjoy very, very much. And of course, rarely if you wanted to celebrate, you'd, you'd go all the way to the HMS Victory, which is beautifully preserved, and, and you can walk around it. I, I did so as a child, and it's, what can I say, it's still there, and still worth visiting. I very much enjoy it. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want me to cover more similar topics, then you can contact me on Instagram at Fleming Never Dies. Comment on whatever my posts are in whatever Facebook group. Or you can email me at albionneverdies at gmail.com. And thank you very much to all the fellas who emailed me in the last week. I've been delighted to receive your emails, um, responded to them all, and it's really good just to, just to strike up a conversation across the miles across continents it's really good to hear from you so thank you very much everybody including you for listening